Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Mendy Yuri. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. As part of our FuturePod conversation series, Marie Conway and Peter Haywood are recorded in conversation as episode 71, where they tackle the question, how can we make our individual and collective foresight capacities real in futures practice and processes? It's a beautiful and revealing exchange, which in my view demonstrates how the quality of a conversation can lead to new understanding and appreciation and answer this question at the same time. It's highly recommended listening. FuturePod has been inviting people to contact us with any follow-up questions which might have arisen about the published conversations. And as a result, we've received five questions from Marie and Peter. I'm delighted to welcome Marie and Peter back again to tackle these questions. Some of these questions are pretty big and may invite expansive responses. I'll be keeping a bit of an eye on the time and if needed, I'll be limiting you both a little in your answers. And just to point out uh, to the listeners that Peter and Marie have the questions in front of them as well. um, So they might choose to reframe the question before starting to tackle it. So welcome, Marie and Peter. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Great. So, Marie, at the end of that episode 71, um, your one of your final comments was that you were going to, you had a lot to think about. Would you like to just um, follow on from that and give the listeners a bit of an idea about um, where you went from there? Um, sure. I went um, inside my head mainly. Um, thinking about processes that engendered trust, um, remembering Peter's uh, points about if, if it's a constrained context with a constrained question, there's usually more trust. Um, I have no answers, but I do know that um, the, the lack of trust in organisations is very real in some organisations I've worked with. And so I'm thinking that there has to be a conversation um, somehow in in the integral left-hand, upper left quadrant with, and the lower left quadrant with the self and about the organisation's culture. Now you can't. It's easy enough to have a conversation with self, but you can't go into an organisation and say, well, "Right, we're going to have we're going to have a conversation about your culture, and we're going to bring the future into it, and and uh, you need to all be trustful and respectful." Um, it's a slow journey. I think what I'm doing at the moment is trying to do some of that inner self work myself to work out how I might be able to move into this more cognitive space that I talked about in the last conversation, which involves trust and a whole lot of other things. So I think that's where I'm at. I said in that conversation too I needed to do some professional development and I'm doing it on myself. Mm. Wow. Fantastic, Marie. Thank you for that. Okay, I'm going to um, introduce the first question now, if that's okay with you too. question is from Penny and she says that I'm the chair of an organisation that aims to improve decisions made with relation to public infrastructure. Decision makers in general are not futures and foresight literate, nor more than I, but or no more than I, but the decisions made affect capacity development for decades to come. So we're trying to create a conversation that encourages consideration of what we call cumulative consequences. In episode 71, Peter said, that social foresight was different from individual foresight and he spoke of the ongoing conversation. So Penny's question is, how can I develop an ongoing social foresight conversation in a virtual environment with a changing cast of participants? Any ideas, please? 
this this is um, very reminiscent for me of where I was when I started using Foresight at Swinburne, where um, the cast didn't really change that much, I guess, but it did. It changed on and off, but it was um, it was trying to integrate the use of foresight into the strategy development process that already existed. So we had to find a space where that was um, feasible, acceptable, um, and that's quite hard to do in an organisation that doesn't know what foresight is and doesn't really care about it, not because they don't care about it, but they haven't worked out how to care about it. Um, so this kind of process for me at Swinburne was very slow. We were at the end of three years and feel, and that at the end of that time we were feeling a bit positive about what we'd done and where we'd come to. And um, the following year saw the demise of Foresight at Swinburne, which was very sad. But it will take time to find that space where you can have this type of ongoing conversation where people do feel safe and trusted. Um, and um, it's about, I think, the first thing that needs to be dealt with in that conversation is that the future is not linear. Um, and I, I'm saying now that there's no such thing as the future because we keep talking about the future. Which, which generates a collective assumption that there's one single future that matters. And I think for me that would be the starting point for this conversation. Yeah. Fantastic. Peter? We um, mm. Yeah, I'll just jump in. I mean, I agree again with, what, with everything Marie said. <clears throat> Going back to Penny's question and... Talking to people in an organisation about the future uh, and particularly about, as Penny couched it, in terms of cumulative consequences, there's almost like an earlier conversation that you have, which is, as, as Marie said, it's about having a conversation with the organisation about the nature of the future. You know, and as I understand the nature of the future, highly uncertain, highly emergent with organisations, particularly those managing infrastructure, that are that carry some responsibility to manage that uncertainty and risk. Mm -hmm. The beauty of framing it that way for me is that there's an open invitation for everybody in the organisation who has a sense of what is happening has got a free invitation to participate. There's no compulsion to participate. But there's a free invitation that, you know, in a complex environment, sense-making has to be shared and has to be up and down the organisation. The beauty of doing it in a virtual format is that you don't need to have everybody in the room at the same time. So there's actually, in some, in some ways, if there's an understanding in the organisation that if you have something to share about the emerging future, then and an organisation is interested in it, then a virtual conversation is actually easier <laughs> to let the person participate. Yeah. But as I said, it, it wouldn't, as as Marie said, this is not something you would just launch into tomorrow. There needs to be a preparatory conversation with the organisation about the nature of how we are going to talk about the emerging future and an invitation for people to come in with their ideas because... Really, we can't have a conversation if we aren't listening to as many of the voices as we can. Mm, yeah. Wonderful. Marie, anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, except that uh, it sounds like Penny already, Penny, Penny already knows this is hard work and it is hard work and it's some... Um, mm. It's quite draining work sometimes because you come up against naysayers and people who push back. And um, and so understanding how to manage yourself as well in that environment is important. Um, it can get quite difficult. I think it depends on how many um, champions, for want of a better word, <laughs> 
there are in the organisation that, that can work with you to, to achieve the, the steps as you go along. Yeah. Yep. And just to pick up on one thing that you said, Marie, I think you said that this process is not linear. Is, is that right? The future's not linear. The future is not linear. Right. Yeah. That's kind of the yeah. Oh, sorry, go on. Is that something that the that you as the facilitator in this process or the guide would have in your head help your understanding or is that something that the participants that you would strive to make conscious with the participants? Yeah, the latter. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me that's a fundamental tenet or principle of futures work. So it's 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 in my brain deeply embedded um but it's not for for a lot of other people but that thing about the future is a is an obstacle to to changing the conversation people yeah yeah have to if i can just if i can just jump in there i mean yeah, it, yeah. there's a real as i say this this is what i refer to as the ongoing proprietary conversation yeah. as to the nature yeah. of the future yeah. a future that's uncertain a future that's not linear a future that is emergent a future that is chaotic a future that has a link to the past, but the future could be different. That it's about trying to shift people's concern for being wrong about the future, because everyone's going to be wrong about it. To the notion of are we being, are we showing appropriate care? Yeah. And uh, and there's both self care and the care for people who expect us as stewards or responsible people. And there is there is a gentleness and a softness that you have to approach the future towards, I believe, because it because no one can be wrong, and and simply no one's a hundred percent right. And those those types of conversations are not typical in organisations that particularly organisations that feel that we have to be right, we have to be sure, we have to be certain. Yeah. Yeah. It's about just let the organisations, when it comes to talking about the future, the emerging future, we can have other types of conversations that are about everybody sharing who wants to share. And there is no right or wrong in this process. We're mm. trying to learn the future to some extent requires us to learn about it as it happens. And the future also changes who we are as an organisation. It's a very, it is a very um, different relationship that organisations and groups have to the future. They both create it, but it also shapes who they are. And it's something that is ongoing learning about because the future never stops. Mm. Wow, great. Penny, I hope that... um... I hope you find those responses interesting. I certainly did. Okay, I'm going to move you on now because we have a few questions to get through here, as I said. The next question, Peter and Marie, is from Amanda. And the question is, when working with a client organisation you sense has low levels of internal trust, how might you describe the potential benefit of engaging in collective foresight practice and what would, we, what would be different in your approach? Would you like to start, Marie? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, when I read this question, my immediate um, reaction was, oh, my God, I've been there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, again, this was in my Swinburne experience, um, but at the time I didn't know or I didn't recognise or I couldn't see that there were low levels of internal trust. I knew that the senior management team didn't like each other very much, but um, I was a bit naive about uh, the goodwill that I'd always had at the organisation and I just assumed that would see me through and I'm doing it so everything will be okay and so off I went trying to implement foresight um, and I had support from the top but that didn't mean anything to the to the people who reported to him. So they worked actively to undermine the work I was doing and I only realised that in hindsight after I'd left. Um, so I, I would start in, in what we call, what I call stealth mode. So you need to find the person with the open mind in the organisation or the people with the open minds in the organisation 
who you can begin a conversation with about how can we, how might we be able to introduce the future into the organisation, um, find um, some way to pilot or prototype an exercise that would bring people together. This relates to the previous conversation, the previous question we answered a lot. Um, and I think the critical thing is to make sure that the outcomes are useful for the people in their everyday life so that they go through this process or this conversation that is like an open introductory conversation about what Peter was talking about, about how do we deal with uncertainty and risk into the future um, and make sure that something comes out of it that is useful, immediately useful, so that they walk away um, from that conversation feeling like it's been worthwhile. Mm -hmm. That's a mistake I made at Swinburne. <laughs> um, <laughs> you really have to, sorry you really have to understand the politics at work you have to find the champion or the champions who are um high high in the hierarchy and highly respected yeah 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 i think um again my take again is um got a couple of things to say which is if there's low levels of trust in an organization then Foresight is not a process that's necessarily going to improve trust. Mm. It doesn't mean it will make trust worse, but if an organisation lacks or a group don't trust one another, then that's that needs to be dealt with as a as a trust exercise. In other words, that's that's the developmental work that has to happen before they can work together. Sorry, Peter, I'll just and, interrupt. What happened yep. though? If that would never happen, which was then, the case at Swindon, yeah. I mean, this is this is this is the tough one. It's really tough for an internal foresight person. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are times when really you should not run a foresight crisis. Mm -hmm. True. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, if I'm an internal person and they say we want to sit down and discuss, you know, and find the vision and purpose of of the group and you do not believe the group can do it, then you need to find some way to basically try and put it off or prevaricate it or again back to my back to the previous conversation we had Marie, is change the boundary. Yeah. Yeah. Draw the boundary in such a way that it becomes safer. Yeah. Um, if you can't draw the boundary and you can't develop trust, then literally, you know, you don't want to start a foresight process because it's only going to damage the brand of foresight mm -hmm. in the organisation. Mm -hmm. um, the other point you said absolutely is you start with where you can. You start with people who want to do it and you start with people and you build it such that people get an outcome that is useful. Uh, as I say, this is, this, is a, this is a very hard one because as an external consultant, when you're often asked to come into an organisation, you don't know the group don't work well. Mm. And you often don't realise that till you're halfway through the workshop in the morning on day one. Mm -hmm. um, but the notion of changing the boundary, of, of making it more technical, I mean, again, in a technical environment, making the conversation a technical conversation is safer than a values-driven conversation. Um, you can, as I said, you, you need to understand that boundary and trust go together and you have to find a place. If people are going to work together and you're the person and you're Johnny on the spot, then you need to find a place where they will work. You need to find a way to limit the work they need to do in order for them to get success from the work. It's a classic permission foresighting process. You need to scale it back, you know, reduce the time, reduce the scope, reduce what this is for. At the same time, if people can work well and have a conversation that is where they listen and they debate and they discuss and they learn, then you are shifting their ability to trust one another in a very limited supported space. So structure, design, boundaries are essential in low-trust environments because otherwise it's going to probably blow up and you're better off, you know, you, you would have been better off not starting the process if you could. Mm. 
Great. There's some. Fa- I feel like we're listening to experience talking from both of you there. Yes. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> some great, great ideas. Thank you. Um, I think we might move on once again to the next question. And this one is from Shannon. Uh, The question is, how do you see the role of experts in going through this process to make it real? And linked with this is diversity of ideologies and biases within the experts. Uh, Shannon says, I'm doing an MBA and the premise of this academically, they think, is to create leaders who are great strategically and have good foresight, but are generalists rather than specialists. Hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll start this one, Marie, and then yeah, you can sure, you can answer. Um, I I thought like Shannon for a while. I thought that experts tended to hang on to their expertise. Um, that gen, that you know often and yeah, you know, we've. One of the notions in foresight is the beginner's mind. You know, yeah, you know, in the in the mind of the beginner, the options are many, and you know, in the mind of the expert, the options are few. And I don't step away from that. But experts can be closed, and experts can be wanting to defend their position, so to speak. This, I think, is what Philip Teplock in his work on um forecasting and uncertainty he calls the hedgehog mindset these are people who say i'm right i know i'm right the data tells me i'm right and that mindset not a person it's a mindset means a person won't easily shift their position because i'm right and you're wrong and my data says i'm right and your data and your data doesn't make you know doesn't you don't persuade me to change my mind why I say I don't agree necessarily with Shannon, I think that's a reasonable thing to say, but you can have people who have expertise and will put it down. <laughs> and a lot of the a lot of the theory in organizations now, particularly in what's coming out in a lot of the software companies, is they want experts who can think flexibly. <laughs> and because they're saying generalists aren't necessarily the best people to, to manage functions. What you need is you need functional experts who are prepared to put expertise down and then become generalists when talking about things that move across functions or across, you know, silos. So as I said, it, I don't think it's as simple as experts can't do it because it's only a mindset. Experts can be trained and maybe the leaders we're talking about are people who both have expertise and the ability to be flexible thinkers. Mm. I think um, my immediate reaction was that you need both, generalists and specialists. Um, You need experts in the room because they've got a lot of knowledge and, um, and that needs to be shared. And... As Peter said, it is a mindset. Some experts are open and sharing automatically. Um, others are more closed. But I think um, for this sort of process, you need I mean, experts. It, dep- oh, it depends really on the context and the culture, I guess. But in, in some situations, ex- experts bring credibility to the process for external audiences. And so it's important for them to be labelled as experts and to have that role in in the process, um, and and in organisations, um, there's functional experts in organisations, and you, and and that flexible thinking is futures thinking, and that's what we're trying to, you know, imbue into the mindsets of people who we work with. Um, as well as yeah. giving the practical outcomes from the exercise itself. So I think Peter, Peter's description is right. You need people who have expert knowledge, but people who've also been trained to think about the future in different ways, in new ways, to look for new solutions rather than just the expert solution. Yeah. A good, 
I think a good way to frame about expertise in organisations is there's a very, very old but very useful process that is not used very much now, but I think is a wonderful process, which is debating. (laughs) And debates require people to show expertise, but the key thing in a debate is there is a debate moderator. And the moderator's job is to moderate if you like, the expertise that's in the room. In other words, people make their case, give their data, make their argument. There's an audience to watch. And the moderator says, thank you. And now we pass over to the other group of experts and then you pass it backwards and forwards. But the notion of debates, the notion of how a moderator, if you like, brings the flexibility of thinking that Marie and I are talking about not through asking people to be individually flexible, but actually respecting the process we're doing. Mm. There's another another very clever way to use debates is is that you ask people to present a debate, but they have to present the argument from the other expertise to theirs. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's It's been successfully done. I mean, debates have rules. Debates have process. They're a learned skill. They can be a powerful way to work in very technical environments. And the key thing about a debate is that it becomes an open conversation for everybody in the organisation to watch. And really the debate between the debaters is not as important necessarily as the audience watching the debate and having their conversation about what they're hearing people say is for or against. So, yeah, I think debating is a good technique for using expertise, and I think it does encourage the kind of mindsets we're talking about through the notion of the moderator. Fantastic. And what comes to mind, Peter, as you're speaking about that, the moderator would also be not just moderating the knowledge or the the expert's um, offering their knowledge, but also moder- moderating the process, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Oops. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Um, we're going to move on to another question which has been received uh, from Daniel. And Daniel's given quite a bit of context to his question, but I th- which Marie and P- Peter have um, both um, looked at, but he's gone down to his question. Got down to his question here, and I'll just um, read out the question because I think it probably stands by itself. Um, when you understand that Peter and Marie also um, have read the background here, so Daniel's coming back to the original question and long-term strategies to overcome the tendency of non-dialogue. That non-dialogue that threatens the immaterial accomplishments of our societies. What could in, what could enable a return to polylogic futures, logical from within each own unique direction? Polylogic futures. Would you yeah. like to open up here, Peter? <laughs> yes, please. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes this is. Um... This is, uh, this is a, again, a great question and a great challenge. Um, I mean, Zsada talks about we, need, we, need, we don't need dialogue, we need polylogue. Mm-hmm. Um, the future, because it is so um, disruptive, we have to get as many different logics into conversations and... That's been a common point in some of the other things where we talked about expertise. There's this notion that, you know, people who are expert in various functions or domains present a different type of logic. But I think what Daniel's going to, which, again, I'll give the, I'll give the simple example. If, if you ask me, could a person who only spoke English have a conversation with someone who only spoke French? about the future. Could they present their logics when they don't have language with which to do it? And when it's framed that way, then of course the answer would be, well, they can't talk about the future, not easily. 
Um, but they can possibly draw it. They can possibly act it out. And we are not locked into language. We prefer it. Maybe we're biased towards it. But the notion that, and I think, I don't think Daniel's question is about can we do it? Because I think the answer is, yeah, we can. I mean, there's many logics, both, as I say, spoken, um, acted out, uh, you know, the logics of physical movement. Um, really, again, we've got the five senses. Uh, I think Daniel's kind of going to the notion of why don't we allow different logics? What is it that causes people to want to shut down to their logic? And again, I draw the earlier questions. There's a notion that the future can be a really, really scary place for people if they think they are responsible to control it or that they somehow are going to be told they're wrong or that they feel that the future has to be made certain. Because, I mean, I... Really, the future is what it's going to be and we have to find individually and collectively our place in this emerging future, both as, to some extent, actors who create it, to some extent, victims of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and really the notion of collective foresight, which is why I said back in the original conversation that there is a paradox between I want to create a future for myself and Marie wants to create a future for herself and Mindy wants to create a future for herself and Daniel wants to create a future for himself. But when we come together, how do we bring together, if you're like, well, we all can't get what we want. <laughs> this, is where the, this is where the collective future is different. The collective future requires us to not just trade away some of what we want, but actually want to give up part of our preferred future in order of the other person getting some of theirs or collectively another group of people getting more. It is really an altruism and a trade-off process where, and that's what makes it so unique and so difficult. That's why trust goes centrally to it because People won't trade off and won't share and won't collaborate unless there is a degree to which they want to do that. You can't make a person, you can take something off someone, but they're not going to thank you for it. They're not going to wish that you'd done it. They're going to resent it. And we're talking here about how do you create futures that mean we, we share in something, which might be exactly what I want, but I'm glad that we're sharing in this rather than just getting what I want. Mm, yeah. Um, for me, it was uh, what surfaced while you were talking, Peter, was that this thing about it's a people focus. It's um, you know, if we're going to allow different logics into a collective conversation, then you have to know that you're blocking them, um, mm. because often the block is not conscious. Um, it's it's just the way the brain has developed and the stage of development and all that kind of stuff um, that either blocks or allows in alternative views. And that led me to think about the work I did on worldviews with my PhD um, using the work of Vidal, um, Clement Vidal, who talks about cosmic evolution and all sorts of wonderful things. Um, but he has a he has a worldview construction model, which for the purposes of the PhD was very very useful. So um, that actually makes you sit down and map your worldview, and you answer a series of six questions, and they are you know what they're ontological, epistemological, um, value driven. But the six questions are, what is what is reality? At you know, in this space now for us, where did we come from? Where are we going to? Um, what values are at play? These are my words. What values are at play? What actions will we take? How do we act? Why do we act in that way? 
And then the sixth question is how do we answer these questions, which is the, the conversation that has to be had um, within the self and also within the collective group. And I think that's part of this issue. It's easy to say, um, you know, my logic's not being heard for very valid reasons, um, but there's, a deep, there's deeper conversations to be had to identify exactly why that's happening. So there's always resistance to this work in organisations um, and it's, it's, not, it's not a physical resistance, it's a mental resistance. So that thing about understanding how your brain works and how, what your worldview is and how you make sense of other people's logic is, is really critical to be considered in this process as well. Yeah, I think, the, again, the notion that in, particularly with groups, is there's a sense that groups want to come together and agree. Natural part of group formation where we, where we, where we you know, we find a consensus. Now, it's very hard to find a consensus about the future. And maybe part of polylogic futures is we never get to consensus. We always hold the tension that we, that, yeah. that we don't want to agree. Yeah. It's actually in the non, it's actually in, in the dissensus of the future that we try to let all the logics kind of play. Now, the, the other side of it is it is, it is impossible to have all logics <laughs> <laughs> in the, at any given point, it's only the logics you've got. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, you can beat yourself up saying, well, we've missed one. The answer is you'll always miss one. In fact, you'll miss more than one. You'll miss a million. I think if I was in a group that was trying to wrestle with this, it would to some extent have the provocation back to ourselves is are we in a dominant logic? Have we, you know, have we shifted other logics outside of the way we're operating? Mm -hmm. you know, we might be happy. We might, we might love the fact that we all love one another and we're working well and we're listening and everything else. Congratulations. But have you done that at expense of excluding? Given that you must exclude, that you, know, you must draw a boundary somewhere. Someone's in, someone's out. Some, you know, an idea's in, an idea's out. One of the one of the beautiful, simple approaches that Zia Sada taught me was ask three questions about any future, which is, does it make sense? Question one. Mm -hmm. Question two, where is it going? And the third question is, who benefits? Yeah, who wins, who loses, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, Third question to ask: Who benefits, and and to do, in fact define who doesn't doesn't mean we've we've done it badly because, but it's the nature of it, the the future is competition. Um, and are then, we considering that? Are we considering that? Yeah. And there's always going to be contested ideas of what the future is, and um, I think. They're contested in the present but not surfaced in the present. And when you ask people to imagine possible futures, they, if they haven't done this inner work, they will use the dominant logic to create the future. Yeah. And it's that thing about recognising that there are other logics that they need to be considered for relevance and validity in this context that's often missing from many foresight practices. Yeah. In fact, I'd go further, Marie, and say it's actually missing from many organisational processes. Yes. Because organisations don't, generally speaking, have great processes for dealing with disagreement and conflict. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If organisations could become more skilled in how we resolve disagreement, now, the classic, the classic resolution of disagreement is who's right, who's wrong. Mm -hmm. okay. That might work for, um, you know, for how to fix a light bulb or how to make a machine work. It doesn't work with the future. Mm -hmm. if, we, if we have to go down who's right, who's wrong, we'll never get there. Is there another way to resolve conflict that doesn't try to say who's right and who's wrong but simply says what about the different ideas? And... and 
Again, you can't do it forever. You can't include all views. This is not about we need to bring another view in and another view in and another view in. But we need to at least say, well, are we outside a dominant view? And the notion of who doesn't benefit, who loses. I mean, I'm a student of history and the problem is the same people keep losing time on time yeah, on time. True. And the notion of a future that reinforces the losers and to some extent reinforces the winners is maybe not a future that actually is ethical. Mm. And I think we're now skating across the notion of the ethics of futures. And I personally think that futures has a strong ethical dimension about trying to shift who has failed, who has who has been disadvantaged by the past towards how do we actually start to shift the dynamic. Yeah. It's sorry, it's a it's a hold it's a holding space where disagreement is the core. Disagreement and forcing almost the antithetical um, ideas and viewpoints into a conversation where they have to find something positive to come out of it. I mean, this is very theoretical, but um, having this space where disagreement is okay and it's it's used to create something new. I have no idea how you would do that in a process, but but that kind of space where it's okay to disagree and that's fine, we won't judge you. Beautiful. We won't judge you. That's been a really... Lovely discussion. Thank you both, Marie and Peter, for that. Um, I love thanks, it. Daniel. Yeah, I love where it yeah. got to. Yes, and thanks, Daniel, indeed. Okay. Marie and Peter, we're going to move on to, now to the final question. So this one is from Rihanna, and it's around the subject of trauma. Um, and Rihanna starts by saying that imagination is absolutely critical to the quality of our lives as it is to our futures and yet it is deeply affected by trauma. Um, she, uh, Rihanna references the renowned psychiatrist and trauma researcher Bessel A. van der Klok, and he says, one of the things that he says is that, um, in a, that imagination is one of the most basic and yet profound elements of humanity, but it is often the first capacity a person unconsciously represses as a defence mechanism against trauma. So Rihanna's question is, what if Bessel is right? What might this mean for our work, our practices, our assumptions about people, about change, and what might trauma-informed foresight reveal? So it's a huge question. I'm not sure where you would like to start with this one. God. Um, um, I, I always go back to that phrase that psychiatrists and other people and we and people in foresight use as well is that when you're dealing with someone in trauma, um, you start from where they are. Um, you don't tell them what to do. You listen. You validate, you support, and then you offer an alternative. You offer help, um, or not. You know, help may be the wrong word, but then you you work with them to to move beyond that space. I mean, trauma will take. I don't know in much about trauma in detail, but I know that it, you know it, it. It does take time to to overcome but being there offering steps and support and never going away um, um, is is a way to deal with it I think Um, and in a foresight process it's the same thing where are you in foresight you're not going to be able to imagine the future now. This is being very superficial. You're not going to be able to imagine the future now, but, you know, talk to me about what you think your future might be. Um, I'm talking about this personally, but in an organisation, you know, in a foresight process, you know, it's about designing the process so there's different levels of steps of engaging with the future. And um, you have to find ways they can contribute. And that's the, that's the, the key for everybody in a foresight process, that 
that a, a single – I mean, I used to be very um, rigid about my foresight processes when I first started out, but I've learned to be a bit more flexible um, because it's more successful. Um, but so the process design for me would have to be done very carefully if you know there's people in the room who have had some sort of significant trauma that's um, that's influencing how they can operate or contribute to the conversation. Sorry, a bit long-winded, but... Yeah, it's a big one. Um, I do... I'm going to say I reject the notion that trauma is necessary. <laughs> so... Um, well, trauma can... my argument out of the water. <laughs> well, I, trauma, is, trauma is fuel for change. Trauma can be catalytic. That does not make trauma a good thing to have. Um, I think, you know, trauma happens in past and is felt in the present. Trauma shouldn't, if trauma is being projected into the future, then the future needs to be changed. The future needs to be different. So the trauma has it. So the notion of things that have caused trauma and those things not repeating in the future mm. is really, really important. But the resolution of trauma is in the now. Yes, yeah. Um, and that's where the attention has to go. The work has to be done individually, collectively, socially to explain the trauma, if it can be explained. In that, and I'm not sure trauma is ever resolved, but in the processing of trauma, there may be impetus, there may be what I would say fuel to actually ensure that this trauma is not repeated on me or anyone. And I think that's the notion that we've seen people who have been through trauma suddenly become very, very focused on changing the future. So we shouldn't be surprised that trauma is powerful and, is, um, and drives human agency. And what I reject is the notion that we need trauma in order to have agents, or we need trauma in order to change the future. I think we can. I think we're perfectly capable of changing the future without trauma. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, yeah. And I would not. I would not be introducing trauma into an organisation. But the trauma can, and I'm and I'm not a trauma expert, so I, I'll certainly defer to 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 Bessel for ideas, but. Things like um, the guilt we feel for what we're doing for the future generation is a form of trauma, in my mind. The notion that we deny the future is another form of um, trauma acting out, so to speak. So there's a whole lot of behaviours that there's the dramatic form of trauma and then there's the kind of, you know, below-the-waterline view of trauma operate that operates, I think, in organisations and people. I mean, so I think, again, as Marie said, we're aware of trauma in organisations because organisations, unfortunately, can be quite traumatic for people. Um, and Futures Work sits, it's not a solution to trauma because you've got to deal with the problem itself. But the future is there as the possibility for the trauma ending or having not been repeated. And that's one of the great liberating aspects of doing futures work, which is to use the future to change, to ensure that what happened in the past and what happened you know, in the present doesn't go forward in the future. Yeah. I was using a more individual perspective um, rather than trauma-informed foresight. I was thinking about... Um, people in the room who have suffered some sort of trauma um, and how to make an inclusive process for those people. But at the broader level that you're talking about, Peter, um, yeah, I think I might agree with you now having listened to you that we don't need trauma. <laughs> <laughs> ah, but we have dominant logics. In a polylogic, we're both right. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, true, true. I think though that that whole that question that Rihanna asked just yeah, it opens up a whole lot of avenues that 
would be useful for any foresight practitioner to explore, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. And yes, and it's and it is easy to I think for all of us to think in our experience of when that has happened that trauma has um been the fuel behind somebody's drive to, um, you know, to, towards activism or towards um, mm. trying to change something in the future for the better. I think we see that um, frequently. Look, I want to, I've just got a bit of an eye on the time, Peter and Marie. I think if you're happy to draw that uh, that last question to a, to a finish, we can um, finish off our um, request, our questions now, but I want to thank you both. I think it's obvious that you know how much experience you both bring to when you're tackling these questions, and the theory behind a lot of your knowledge. And also, uh, it strikes me that in the conversation between you two, there are always uh, there are always new understandings that come out just by the um, by the process of going backwards and forwards with your responses. So it's been it's been a fascinating session and I, so I want to thank you both and I also want to thank the people who've sent in questions to FuturePod because I think they've been an amazing uh, bunch of questions. Definitely. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Maria. It's, uh, that's, that's hard work but it's hard work but good work. Yes, true, true. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Mendy Yuri saying goodbye for now.